0: Uh, Good afternoon, and thank you for coming to today's lecture. Uh, This is the fifth lecture, hosted by Breeze Little, proudly in association with LSE Arts. This event forms part of LSE's Space for Thought Literary Festival 2014, and has the theme Reflections. Breeze Little is a commercial gallery based in Clerkenwell, London, and we pride ourselves on a meaningful public education programme. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank the Singer Zaharia family as the new sponsors of our off site lecture series. It is my great pleasure to introduce today's speaker, Adrian Searle. Adrian has been writing art criticism for over 35 years and has been art critic for The Guardian since 1996. Today, Adrian asks Who needs critics? Who listens? Why look? And why write and read? Find everything. Why?
1: It's
0: big enough. Sorry. No, no. I would uh, like to remind you that this afternoon's lecture is being recorded, and that the podcast will be available for download on the LSE website next week. For those of you who would like to tweet during this lecture, about which I have mixed feelings, uh, the suggested hashtag is #LSELitFest. Uh, finally we'll be taking questions at the end so if you could hold on to them till then that would be great and uh, Adrian over to you thank you very oh, much okay, indeed that was quick.
2: <laughs> I'm going to be tweeting too so, um, <laughs> uh, what was the hashtag again? Uh, LS, hashtag LSE it is alarming when people Massively, as you said, hurriedly tweeting when you're you're in the middle of a talk, but as a spectator sport, watching the tweets come up when someone else is uh, making more or less a fool of themselves on a stage, it's it's fantastic. And um, there's been a lot of talks recently, and in fact, I was invited to one this last week to go to Lisbon to talk about the crisis in criticism. I didn't realise there was one but um, (laughs) there is well there is a crisis but the crisis is really about being paid and and, um, having a job because the as we know art critics on broadsheets throughout the world are being made redundant and um, are being supplanted by either something that looks more like promotion or uh, to do a personality driven uh, pieces or, or by bloggers who are co-opted for almost no or, no, or none at all uh, money to do things and the, the, there is a fantastic rise in the n- amount of PR material which gets kind of recycled and used in favour of what we might call <coughs> excuse me, what we might call art criticism um, but there's still a few of us about less than once there were. Excuse me. But the other... (coughs) So I was invited to this thing in Lisbon and um, I may well go they're not offering any money but Lisbon's a good place. (laughs) And in fact, the last time I lectured in Lisbon uh, to students, to students of uh, curating... And of um, kind of art journalism. Someone put their hand up and said, Is it okay if we don't repeat too much of the press release? <laughs> uh, I had to say, don't, don't even read it, that was my answer to that question. Um, How long do you want me to talk? I asked. He said, Oh, three hours today, three hours tomorrow. <laughs> I, I will try and keep this somewhat shorter <laughs> than that. Um, but this question of, of art critics being made redundant is, is a good one, and it sharpens one's it sharpens one's thinking a bit about what <coughs> what one both about what one does um, and what one might do in order to keep a job, and um, why one does what one does, why, why I do what I do, and this idea of a crisis of employment is, is a very real one, um, which raises the question of well, who needs critics and what actually does a critic on a, on a newspaper do when I started writing in newspapers which was for the independent in the mid 90's 94 I think I started there um, you had to explain what, a, what an installation was or why video might be art.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> these are the higher beings who are telling me what to say <laughs> <laughs> um, um, who I did like Sigmar polka kind of command to, to 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 give me guidance through this through this event, but um, you weren't supposed to hear that it's like this like the stage manager kind of walking on at, at the end of a talk but but one does very much think about well, what exactly do both what do newspapers want from art critics um, the answer to which is probably kind of fairly simple. They want things to be sexy and to be um, hot, and things have got to be either really, really good, and you're supposed to say how brilliant they are, and be all enthusiastic, or or how bad they are, because nobody likes anything more than a takedown. And of course, most art isn't like that. that. Most art is much more complicated than that, and neither the best nor the worst which isn't the same as mediocrity and one tries to avoid writing about mediocrity um, because that's a pretty mediocre thing to do Um, and to read um, but most things uh, there's a level of ambivalence about what one feels about most of the art one looks at, whether as a critic I mean everybody's a critic in some sense Um, just as Joseph Boy said everybody was an artist but the, the real um, the real difficulty is unpacking the, quite all the complex things one feels about what one looks at in a, in a newspaper article so there, there's a way of in which they <clears throat> one even encourages oneself to, to, to polarize perhaps rather more than than one actually feels but that's that's and if one doesn't do it oneself Why am I calling myself... Why am I... Anyway, um, if you don't do it yourself, the sub-editors will do it for you. I know this is going to be podcast so that my subs may well watch or listen to this at some point, so I have to be extremely careful because they're watching you all the time. (laughs) The crisis in criticism, really, which is, is talked about a bit, and, and people are scurrying off to write their think pieces about it, is a bit like the crisis in painting that was talked about in the 1990s. You know, the supposed death of painting, which didn't quite happen. And there's probably more paintings being shown now um, than there were in the heyday of uh, the mid 80s or 70s or something. There's, there's an awful lot of painting around, um, even though. People have said it's it's over, and there's more criticism around than than this supposed crisis in criticism might might lead one to suspect everybody's at it, perhaps not so much in newspapers but but in blogs and w- podcasts in online publications <clears throat> it's everywhere and it seems there's never really been more of a readership for it either either you're talking to yourself or you have an audience and audiences both for reading about art and for going to look at it have never in my experience been larger than they are today (coughs) there's more of it, more of everything everywhere all the time not just galleries and public institutions museums but more biennales, more You know, more huge uh, Rasmatavs, shingdigs all over the world. Every year, everywhere wants a biennale, it seems. I mean, they've got a biennale, why can't we have one? Why can't we have one every year? (laughs) (laughs) And it's not just that there's been so much visible that you can go and look at. And people travel more cheap airline tickets have meant that people do pop off to Italy to see uh, I don't know, the Venice Biennale or they go to Documenta and Munster and all these other big things in Germany for example people do go Um, not only is it more available everywhere but we can look at it more and more online this talk is a good example that you can relive every minute at a later date you can pause and you can backtrack Um, and not only go and see virtual exhibitions but watch talks like this artists, conversations lectures something happened in I don't know, Chicago last week at the Renaissance Society You you can go and watch it on Vimeo today or tomorrow I mean that's Pretty amazing. The amount of information slewing around the world is, has never been more. But back to the museums, really. I mean, it's not just public spaces and private galleries, large and small. Although the rise of the mega-gallery, the huge, you know, Gagosians and Hauser-Wurts and the rest of them, may be squeezing the middle of the art market a bit, but there are more younger galleries... Um, in strange places, warehouses in Stamford Hill. And, um, I mean, when I, it was always the case, I think. I mean, when I worked for Time Out in the early 90s, uh, I would be asked, I would always let them decide what I'd go and see. I never, I never sort of said I want to go and review that. I would always let it happen because it was a way of being led hither and thither uh, around the city um, to see things I w- otherwise wouldn't <coughs> encounter. You know, Sarah Kent would say to me, there's two young men doing something extraordinary with yards of rubber tubing up in, uh, up in Ponder's End. You must go and write about that. And so off I would go. And even though money is tight, a lot of these smaller spaces somehow manage to survive. Sadly, I don't have the space, or my editors don't have the inclination for me to go and write about them that much. But uh, one does feel... Uh, Here he is again. It's that one again. I do feel a bit of an obligation to go and see as much as I can. Sometimes people come up and say, I love your criticism, especially the
1: videos.
2: (laughs) The weird thing is that um, even though deadlines are very tight and I may have to go and write about an exhibition that I only saw yesterday uh, by lunchtime, um, it's the videos which... um, are pretty much done off the cuff in one take, um, do seem to be kind of popular and I really love doing them. But what does that, what do they really have to do with criticism? I don't know. Criticism, well, I think what they do is that they lead me to think that criticism at times is a kind of performance, that it's a performative activity. And sometimes going to exhibitions uh, and looking at people's art, one one starts to have a kind of method-acting way of writing. So um, so different kinds of art lead you to write in different ways, that there's a sort of echoing and a sort of um, uh, a sense in which I sometimes feel that... Uh, you know, if I'm writing about minimalism, I start to think a bit like Don Judd, who, who in his own criticism, before he became a very famous artist, would write almost as if he were going around with a tape measure. you know. There's a very famous piece he once wrote about Barney Newman talking about about nine inches in from the left, there's a vertical stripe about <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, six and a half feet tall and it's about that wide. And, and he, he would describe the painting thus. And of course, he described everything. But something escaped, something... Mm something couldn't get in there and I think that interested him as much as his very literal description of artworks Um, but this whole idea that one writes in a in a slightly boisterous way about expressionism and gets very angsty or one is very calm and um, somehow disaffected in one's writing about other kinds of art minimalism, for example, um, and gets thoughtful with conceptualism. <laughs> um, it's kind of interesting, and I rather like that idea, and certainly for the, some of the art that I've liked the best, and uh, writing a very denigrated species of writing called the catalogue essay, um, one can go to places in the writing and in one's thoughts that certainly a newspaper doesn't give one the space to do or it's misunderstood by the editors or um, returned and you're told to really stick to the subject (laughs) Um, because writing about art leads and looking at art leads you to all kinds of places um, in your head Uh, and they're not always altogether to do with what is actually in front of you I mean I think this is true of everybody and you go and see a show on a bad day when you've had a row with your partner or you've been bitten by the dog or the central heating's broken down you may be not in the mood to really look at it in the same way you might if you were in love or if you're in love with the artist, perhaps, but uh, one is affected by all these things, or at least I am. And even though it's a bit of a dirty word, and I'll come back to dirty words in a minute, the idea of instrumentalizing the art that you look at and using it as somehow a springboard for your own anxieties and your feelings and your predilections um, is, I think, a natural thing to do. So long as you don't turn into Alain de Bouton, that's all right.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: If you do happen to... Only the time to boot on, I would seek professional help as soon as possible. Another effect of uh, social media and the internet in general is that everything you say, every little video you make, every article you write is available everywhere all the time. And so If I'd given a talk, say, I don't know, in Toronto, five years ago, for example, uh, you may think, hang on a minute, I went to see him and it cost me 10 quid last week and he said exactly the same thing as he said then. Well, we are all who we are and we say what we say. The other thing is that we worry about consistency. There is a sort of an idea that critics ought to be in some way consistent and to have a line um, to have um, to have some kind of um, position in regard to art uh, and that what one does the writing you do w- should somehow uh, flesh out and develop uh, that position through the art that you look at which is another kind of instrumentalization, in, in my view and um, I don't have one of those, I never did. And it has always struck me to be a bit false because we change all the time. And unless the art changes us too, there's a big question about why you'd want to look at it in the first place. So if there is a position, if I've got a position, for example, I leave that for every bo- for readers to, to work out. Uh, you've got to stay interesting and you've got to... St- well. You've got to try to be interesting, and you've got to try to be interested, uh, if not exactly enthusiastic all the time. But there's a way in which we do police ourselves as critics. Um, there's only so far out, <coughs> only so far out on a limb one can go without actually falling off the branch. But we're also policed by the institutions themselves, and not just the big museums everywhere now doesn't just send out press releases but often have helpful wall panels and texts to help guide the viewer through the complexity and difficulties of the art on show what you won't find in general is the prices on the wall, (laughs) have you noticed that? and if you ask about the price um, we were discussing this a bit earlier uh, galleries often say why are you asking? As if it were a rude and difficult question. For a long time, I tried to keep myself well away from any... Never write about the market, for example, and try not to go to auctions um, because it seemed to me to get in the way of what one was looking at. If, if I know that that Jeff Koons is worth two million, that would change the way I look at it in a way. Or if I allow myself to feel it's important, it would change the way in which I would write about it, perhaps. Not that it 's ever stopped me, but um, the glamour of money and there 's more money now than I think there 's ever been uh, that i've in my knowledge of the art world, which goes back to the late 1960s when I was probably st- when I was still at school when I started to go and see shows there 's never been more money around than there is now, and um, <coughs> while banks come and go Ponzi schemes decimate uh, the world of collectors in some places uh, oh. art is still at certain level a great hedge against um, financial insecurity and people put their money in art in the way in which they used to put it into the stock market but it does crash sometimes only briefly there was Black Wednesday was it? Black Friday? Black some one day or other, when it all crashed. But it soon crept back up to the position it's in now, where where Francis Bacon's are going for unimaginably large prices. There's that story of Picasso who once went to a uh, once went to a cafe somewhere in the south of France, and at the end of his uh, his lunch, the patron came out and said. Uh, would you mind pablo doing a little drawing on some menu for me and he said <laughs> and picasso said look i just want to pay for lunch i don't want to buy the restaurant
1: <laughs> 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 yeah
2: the biggest artists are like race cash cows and race horses and every gallery has got to every big commercial gallery has got at least two or three who bring in the money And allow them to also show untested, untried, difficult and sometimes actually unsaleable art. And showing that that kind of work gives them a kind of credibility, a sort of street cred um, that, say, the Anish Kapoor's of this world don't actually give them. I didn't mean that, Anish. It's all right. (coughs) This always wasn't the case and, and going to galleries in the late 1960s and all through my turbulent career as an art student uh, one was just ping-ponging really between Cork Street, the Whitechapel, the ICA and Tate. Some things don't change although of course Cork Street's about to <coughs> be torn down and if not there then to studio complexes in Butler's Wharf and Hackney Space Studios and Acme open studio shows and surviving by working in art schools, either as a student or by, when one got a grant in those days, if you remember student grants, or by part-time teaching. And that's how most artists actually survived. The idea of having a a full-time career as an artist was was almost unimaginable in this country. It was a sort of rumour that came from America that one could do that apart from a very few. But now there are more artists who can survive by selling their work and not having to teach than there were ever before, which isn't necessarily, in my view, a good thing. I mean, I think it's good that people can survive, but I also think it's good that artists can teach. Art schools, of course, is another issue altogether, perhaps, from today, but one which does impinge on every young artist's life. They're left with huge debts at the end of college. Um, Colleges, more and more, like art galleries themselves, uh, become bigger and bigger. The smaller ones fall away or get amalgamated, uh, swallowed up in things like the University of the Arts. And being an art student is often rather like being a sausage in a sausage machine. And, or a fame, or you go to a school which you think will be a fame school which will help you get a, a first step in the career in a professional career which is what a lot of people felt that Goldsmiths was becoming in the late 1980s after the success of those students who became known as the YBAs <coughs> and it wasn't because there were critics like me patrolling the art school studios picking out the hot young things it was much more to do with students doing it for themselves and inviting in, not critics so much, but collectors and by collectors we mean Charles Saatchi
1: Um,
2: Charles Saatchi, it it always struck me, and I wrote about it quite often was uh, seen as a sort of one-off, this sort of maverick, lunatic who instead of putting his money into property, racing cars uh, um, horses or whatever else the actual British aristocracy used to put their money into was buying contemporary art and there were very, very few collectors in this country at the time when he, he and Doris Saatchi, his first wife and who was really the brains behind his uh, the spur to his collecting um, were buying art from the early nineteen eighties onwards. Um, the British obsession in the newspapers with, with Sachi was has been and still is in some respects, um, it blinds us to the fact that there are lots of other collectors here now and there, there is a way in which contemporary art has become socially acceptable and cool and groovy. And for a certain amount of money, you can become one of that huge number of names at the back of every Serpentine Gallery <laughs> press release and catalogue who has bought in, in some ways, to this, this glamorous world of contemporary art. And the collectors, and I think also curators, have become more powerful than critics once thought that they were. I, I love the idea of... Th- I mean, I think the idea of writing criticism uh, was planted in me probably by watching a film called The Rebel, starring Tony Hancock, which was a very famous and wonderful film uh, about a sort of modern Gauguin. But instead of going to Tahiti, Tony Hancock went to Paris and hung out with existentialists and with a very suave and rather evil art critic played by George Saunders. Uh, But there's a long George Saunders story, but I won't go into that now. And he was somehow manipulating careers and taking people on and somehow shimmying in this rather (laughs) suave British 1930s and 40s way through the international art world. He was was sort of um, not just evil, but sophisticated and um, a bit like the Mekon in Dan Dare or something and I would like to say that he was much more of an influence on me than John Berger perhaps or or, I don't know David Sylvester or that very belligerent Australian man whose name I've forgotten the very same (laughs) but these were critics as larger than life individuals and people who carried within and about them uh, an aura of, not just sophistication, but of knowledge. Um, You could imagine them going around the Venice Biennale in a gondola, um, being helicoptered in to to, uh, see shows, and the doors of the most biggest and most swankiest hotels would open to them, and they got into every single party. If only that were true of myself. It's not... Such uh, such um, uh, behaviour and uh, attention is only given to the biggest collectors and the uber curators these days. Sachi is small fry, to go back, in a way. If you compare him to the Eli Broads or the Rebels, uh, Panza de Biomo, um, the people who run the Prada Foundation. Uh, and so on, these are the real big collectors who don 't just have little vanity shows, but they have museums stuffed with art of their own. You could say that that 's what 's happened down at uh, down at, at sloan square with with sarchi 's uh, big building, but who goes there now? Um, the sh-
3: <laughs> I'm sorry the body ones
2: okay I believe you um, I haven't been to see that one I haven't been it's been a, a while since I've been down there but certainly at the level of the kind of art he shows it's not as impressive as some other collectors and nor is it have any of the rigour of some of especially uh, European collectors who collect in depth uh, rather than breadth and who continue to collect the same artists year after year or the same group of artists uh, and have what you might say is a really strong curatorial sense of what they're doing. They're not just buying stuff and then flogging it when they get bored with it. Um, so not all collectors are bad even though Mark Rothko did kill himself because he met the people who bought his work. Um, <laughs> and artists I think often have an ambivalent relationship to, to both, both collectors and curators. Um, the rise of the curator has been a very interesting subject. People used to select exhibitions in the past um, but now they curate them. They probably curate their own breakfasts too Um, and if you're looking for tastemakers it's the collectors and the curators as much probably more than art critics that set the pace one of my colleagues a critic um, who doesn't work for the Guardian uh, was complaining not that long ago about how critics were losing their authority and it's always struck me that we never had any or I would like to believe we don't have any. Um, I never, never believe your own publicity, is what I say. And as for power, it's best if you try not to think about that too much. Um, but what's the point of having power if you can't use it? I, I doubt very much whether, at a certain level, a critic can destroy an artist any more than a critic can make an artist, because it's not the critics, after all, who put people into biennales and collections. Um, That's done by curators and their teams, um, who not so often employ critics to work for them. Uh, And then there are these shadowy beings called art advisors. Um, Perhaps there's one or two here. Hello. Hello. Um, and so that's interesting but well, where where does that leave the artists Who are they supposed to shimmy up to these people often I mean it's probably true that all the bad things that you hear and the corruption and everything that one hears about contemporary art is true in some ways but I think it probably always was and complaining about collectors is a bit like complaining about the Catholic Church during the uh, during the Renaissance Um, and as someone said to me not very long ago um, how do you think that the Pope met Michelangelo? Do you think he bumped into him in the road? Uh, No, artists have always had careers and have always had to talk to the right people and uh, have had to um, do the work of making their way in the world Um, and that goes right back through history I think I mean who said no he can't paint that bison in the cave because that guy over there is better at it and he's got more pigment um, <coughs> and collectors certainly not just in the in the quattrocento cinquecento but you look at the collectors of the 19th century the famous Dr. Barnes of Philadelphia um, sorry early 20th century and um, who you know got Matisse out there to paint his walls and put together a collection which wasn't just odds and ends even though it sometimes looked like it in his collection with his fanciful collection of locks and, and um, um, uh, you know, door hinges as well as slightly iffy Van Goghs and great things and less great things he put it all together with, with a certain idea in mind and he wanted his collection to be seen as a sort of teaching aid. He had a a strong idea of what he was doing, and it wasn't just buying things to stick on the walls that he would replace when the next big artist came along next year. He had a sort of sense of coherence, even if he was totally bonkers, um, about what he was doing. So not not all collectors are bad, and certainly not all curators are. I think most curators are trying to do their best and not just to be fashionable but to um, to have a sense of uh, an always developing and complex and difficult sense of what is worth looking at and why we might look at it and what would make sense certainly in a museum of some kind of coherent development uh, obviously, everybody makes mistakes. critics too that we champion things that disappear within a few years and you think, "What was that all about? Why did I think that was so great then We are swept up in our times each and every one of us, and the idea that we are above our times is probably one of the most blinding myths that we can have it 's a bit like the night it 's a bit like looking at um, if you look back, and you look at you look at images, ideas about the future in the 1950s or the 1930s, all those spaceships which were supposed to be futuristic now look so old-fashioned, and yet there was this idea of the future and, and thinking about how things may be and how things are going to develop, which it, which is fascinating. Artists. <coughs> have these ambivalent, just like critics have ambivalent relationships to the art that they look at, artists have ambivalent relationships with the people who collect them and who curate them or oh, please curate me um, and instances, there are more and more instances of artists turning around and saying no this week for example for the forthcoming Sydney Biennale at least five artists and I think more now have withdrawn because of the sponsorship given by a company called Transfield to the Sydney Biennale. Transfield is running uh, the internment camps for illegal immigrants in Australia uh, where there have been riots and deaths in the last few weeks. And artists do have a certain power and they either ignore what's going on around them in the same way that Zaha Hadid is ignoring what is happening and the numbers of deaths that have been caused by the working conditions uh, of the buildings she's making or has decided to make in Qatar <coughs> or they do something about it um, this is something rather more than institutional critique there's nothing an institution likes more than a bit of institutional critique really it shows how liberal they are it's a you could go back to Susan Sontag really and what she said about you know, dissident art uh, is that the way in which dissident art always within five minutes gets assimilated an art which can't be sold gets somehow sold Any, you can buy and sell almost anything in the end and this idea of dissidence or of institutional critique um, is in some way playing on the vanity of the institution itself it shows them how liberal they are which is a bit of a long way from criticism as such but artists are sort of critics too in that sense Um, and to keep their independence of their work uh, and to be allowed to carry on their work is often in a rather tense relationship in a dialectical relationship with both institutions who show them and promote them or galleries who sell them and the independence of the they, they want their work to be visible and they also want their work to be able to continue and they have to survive and so this is often a tricky messy, dark and murky business which where was I? I was going somewhere I had a good link there but it's sort of gone um, yeah and artist relationships to critics and critics to artists are complex too we sort of need each other in some ways even if the critic can't make you famous uh, and can't destroy you perhaps in a way that one might imagine that they once could um, critics somehow well let's put it this way I mean Wouldn't it be awful if you wrote a book or made a work which went on display somewhere and no one said a single thing about it? Not saying things about the art that one looks at is itself a sort of critique and and obviously I see a great deal more than I ever write a single word about. And to ignore things is, is in a a way, uh, a pretty tough kind of criticism. Um, But to be met with silence is, would suit very, very few artists indeed. Where's the oxygen in the room? Where's the conversation? Where, where does it go? Artists um, speak to each other. Very few of them live in soundproofed garrets. Um, but when they do get together, of course, they talk about money more than anything, and how awful the gallerists are, and the curators, and the collectors, and, and the fucking critics um, but, but there are dialogues and people do need dialogues and conversations um, and I, I think that's one of the values of criticism really, is that, is that it does it generates it generates thinking not necessarily newspaper criticism as such because there are so many different kinds of criticism and, and ways of talking and writing and thinking about art from even if you look at art from a theoretical point of view, you could you can have ten different ways of of working at it and thinking through it and worrying about it and worrying at it, you know, from from the sociological to the uh, to, to the psychoanalytic, from the linguistic to to uh, whatever you fancy, to the formalist, if you like. Not that there are that many formalist critics about now they'll be back I'm sure um, <coughs> so that's another of the positions really of the critic is, is, is to somehow generate discussion reading below the bar on online discussions uh, that follow articles one might imagine that frequently that, uh, that a world that existed when I began still still obtained That the art world is corrupt that the artist is pulling the wool over the public's eyes um, that it's all the fault of Duchamp or Picasso or one one or the other Uh, uh, and I've been hearing all that for the last um, 40 years perhaps Um, only the names have changed but, but pretty much the same discussions still go on but a lot more interesting stuff happens too and that's one of the great advantages I think of, of the post-internet world is that discussions do happen You know, in all sorts of unlikely places and that uh, social media help them happen um, and talks like this well perhaps not this talk obviously obviously not this talk um, <laughs> the last place you'd go but uh, there, there are more talks now than ever there were before. More, more discussions, more forums, more more everything. Just less space for newspaper art critics. Um, which may not be a bad thing. I don't know. The idea that critics are suppliers of meaning um, is, as well as being there with our little um, slide rules and measuring people up for their coffins and uh, so on is... is Is interesting. I mean, everybody is a supplier of meaning. Really, the idea that I'm always wary of artists who say that their work is about whatever anybody wants to think it's about, because that's dumb. But no artist, no artist, you know, owns all the meaning of their work, and meanings change and over time, um, and we interpret and misinterpret and instrumentalise. on and on and on and on. we, we reinterpret you know art proceeds by a series of Chinese whispers, perhaps, and by misinterpretations and by looking at things in the opposite way to which uh, the, the op- in an opposite way to the kind of to the kind of I'm running out of water. We don't have to follow what an artist intends, although what they intend. Uh, is always interesting in itself in one way or another artists often think against themselves to sort of paraphrase the, the Romanian philosopher Turan thinking against yourself is a good thing to do and often as a critic you have to, I find, I find myself certainly having to you know the last things one really wants to have to say often is whether things are good or not uh, those kind of value judgments are there implicitly but there are much more interesting things to do than just to just to say three out of ten, four stars, two stars avoid this at your peril or avoid it at all costs mm. and all those meanings come about by by conversation I've never met a good artist no there's a word I've never met an interesting artist who didn't who wasn't massively curious about the, about the world? Um, doesn't mean to say that everyone is well read, um, or that spends the evenings at home with a book of philosophy. But that curiosity is always there, and a certain way of thinking which runs against the grain. A lot of them, though, do want artists, sorry, do want critics um, to tell them how great they are all the time. But artists, I think, need resistance as well as support. The only support anyone can rely on is the support of their mothers. Um, And even their unqualified support may well have a kernel of resistance somewhere behind it. And one that goes unspoken probably But, and I've often been in a position in fact was very recently of saying an artist friend's show wasn't as great as I'm sure they would have liked me to have said um, there are some critics who don't hang out with artists who, don't, who, who avoid them at all costs I mean I avoid press views at all costs because you meet other critics there and uh, when other critics ask me what I think I always lie um, to lead them up the garden path. Well, Adrian doesn't think he? it's very good. Well, maybe it isn't very good. And then, of course, <laughs> I'll write how fantastic the show was, and so no, i just—it's a way of—it's um, part of the game, if you like. But um, unalloyed praise is—is is something uh, to be wary of, I think. Um, but however narcissistic and vain and uh, megalomaniacal. Many artists are, and critics too come to that. Um, They don't need lackeys and arse lickers, really. Um, And it's part of our job, I think, part of the job of all of us as viewers to think for ourselves in front of artworks and to not necessarily toe the line of the... um, inspector general of uh, curatorial um, interpretation. Um, you know, they have these people now, curators of interpretation, who tell you how you're meant to think. And uh, and we have to resist that a bit. Um, I know they're only trying to be helpful, like a policeman sending you... I mean, you're asking for directions. Um, but often... As you turn and walk away, you do feel as if you're being hit over the back of the head uh, and told what is and um, is not um, acceptable thinking in front of the work we need we need uh, differences and it doesn't matter if I disagree with another well it's some critics of course it does matter if I, if I disagree with them I want to do more than disagree with them but um but we need these differences. Um, I think artists need dissent. Um, There was a time in the 70s when I, you know, when I was an art student and and had my first, moved to London, had my first studio and was going around shows, when the world felt completely divided, there was such a small audience for contemporary art. The people you saw at galleries were other art students and young artists and your teachers, uh, on the whole and there wasn't great floods of people going through smaller galleries um, or even some of the larger ones Um, and that has changed so entirely in the last 20 or 30 years uh, that it would have been unimaginable I would have laughed at you if you said it was things were going to be as they are now um in the 70s quite how, well, how that sea change has happened it's happened incrementally I believe um, it, is interesting in itself but there is definitely an appetite uh, for contemporary art some of it of course is to do with fashion and some of it you go to take modern is to do with tourism um, but a great deal more it, people do go back and people do look and people are interested of all ages and coming from all kinds of different backgrounds and places. Looking at... um, A good example would be the Tino Seagal piece in the Turbine Hall at Tate Modern last year. And his collaborators came from all kinds of backgrounds. They weren't all wannabe artists or wannabe curators or wannabe critics or whatever. They came from all kinds of backgrounds, and their participation... Um, had all kinds of very different reasons behind it. Uh, And yet, what they did was part of something quite extraordinary. Obviously, participation is not the same thing as spectatorship, although I would argue that spectatorship is itself a kind of participation in one way or another. And that seems to me to be... um, really quite crucial to what critics do and what our role might be, that too is a kind of public participation Um, some of us may be failed artists as critics are often described as being as well as teachers being described as failed artists Um, and I would say that well maybe it's a way of making art by other means or it's a way of being engaged by other means and engagement rather than dumb, mute, silent spectatorship is something that we, we should all, I think, be grateful for. Um, not saying that we should all have seminars together when we are hanging around in art galleries trying to mind our own business or pick somebody up, perhaps. Um, but the, there is this sense that art has a cultural, a, a cultural value. We may not know what it is, but that it might have value uh, is an aspiration that it might change the world is another aspiration how it might do that um, beyond its mere presence uh, is slightly more complex when when the um, American abstract expressionist Clifford Still first had a show in Europe in Paris um, he was was given to grandiose statements um, and grandiose paintings come to that but he said and this was sort of Cold War era when those paintings arrive on the docks in Calais and they land on the dock they'll feel the tremors all the way to the Kremlin (laughs) Um, people I don't think people have quite such such grand and overarching (laughs) ambitions for their art perhaps, well some may I mean um, uh, but but that art can change things and can speak about things um in complex ways which which otherwise would remain opaque or not discussed is in fact is a really good thing I mean art apart from anything else is part of society and no matter what Maggie ever said um, it does exist and the idea of a dialogue the idea of dialogues and different audiences because there's no homogeneity about the art audience uh, seems to me to be a, a kind of a Even if it's a collective myth in which we all participate in, in one way or another, otherwise why would we be here? Even if it is a collective myth, it's one worth thinking about and preserving, in my view. This may seem idealistic, and at 60 you may think, I'm too old for ideals, but uh, it seems to me that some of us in our dotage become somewhat more radicalised or more enthusiastic or feel that I certainly feel that I'm not quite the pompous little know-it-all who wrote his first art review in 1976 I'm a pompous old whatever sorry just checking my Twitter feed here and um, Watching, watching um, the, the tweets that were coming out of uh, uh, a, spe- a speech by a critic in, in Los Angeles a couple of weeks ago, Dave Hickey, who was doing a, a tour promoting his book uh, Farmers and Pirates, and Dave Hickey being a, a, a critic who looks a bit like a roadie for a heavy metal band, um, or he did... Until, as he said in his writing, my face fell off, which is to do with all the drugs he used to consume. And was a professor uh, uh, and teaching criticism and writing criticism, the, the only one in Los Angeles. Um, sorry, Las Vegas. Um, it was it was uh, a, an alarming read, um, not least because of the, the extremes that he went to um, um, to annoy and provoke in, in, in his discussion. And um, it's the last bastion, I think, for some critics, is, is to become this sort of wayward, maverick personality. Me, wayward, maverick? It's the skinny jeans that do it. Um, all of which, I guess, in conclusion, uh, is to say that who needs criticism? Well, perhaps we all do, but not mine necessarily, but... The critici- what we take for criticism. I mean, what is criticism in mean, the first? I mean, the idea of we're not necessarily just weighing things up on the on the scales of good and bad. Uh, we're talking about the art that we look at, and this seems to me to be integral to the process of of looking at art and thinking about it, rather than just promoting it, selling it, collecting it, or curating it. It's a species of work. It's a kind of work which is valuable in all kinds of different ways. The demise of, or the the slowdown, the, the, the this idea that you know the critics are are in newspapers are an endangered species is probably true. Um, we're losing our territory, but there are wide savannas out there. Um, the thing about critics is, you know, we don't breed. Uh, in fact, the last critical couple, Jerry Salts and Roberta Smith, who she works for the New York Times and, and Jerry um, in New York Magazine and, and elsewhere, um, you know, th- I thought they were going to cage them like pandas at one point.
1: <laughs> um,
2: the one thing I missed was the relationship with artists, wasn't it? Uh, uh, we have complex relationships with artists, critics, and. Um, <coughs> I think we always will, always have and always will, as long as there are critics and as long as there are artists. Um, This doesn't often get discussed. Um, When I am offered a book deal, it will be about that very thing, I'm sure. (laughs) Um, uh, Thank you very much. I will take questions now. He went on too long, it says here, from <laughs> hashtag you are a, No, it doesn't.
0: Um, we're going to take a few questions at a time. So, uh, uh gentleman at the back first.
2: Are you the man that goes to the Saatchi Gallery? Yes, sir. You're very welcome. Um, it
3: absolutely... over three hours on both of them. at least six people that really good. And the body language one was obviously so you look at the internet, Wow. <laughs> um, anyway, um, I looked at the interview yesterday, and I was very impressed with your article, um, in the Guardian article about Peter Doig, a stillness in the troubling world. Which, and
2: I've written a lot about Peter over the years, so I don't know which what, one that... I've written a lot about him in...
3: I think it was about uh, four years ago, but it was the one that was right at the top of the search. Okay, okay. A wonderful article. And anyway, um, it's, it strikes me that until about... In the world of art history... art criticism until about ten or fifteen years ago, I never read a really good article about figurative painting, whereas now in the last decade it's been it 's been common and um, My guess is that Tom Lubbock, uh, the late, you know who died from cancer two or three years ago, was the man that that made the breakthrough, uh, and I think, you know, you say you work for the independents, so I guess you work alongside them, uh, can, he can, I answer,
2: can I answer one at a time, because it's yeah. easier. It's easier, really, because otherwise we'll get yeah. lost. But no, Tom came to the independent after I'd left, although I did know him, uh, and uh, in, in, in fact he he died of a, a rather strange um, effect of a brain tumour, um, it wasn't cancer, and uh, I don't think you're quite right about figurative painting. There's there's been a lot of writing about figurative painting for a long time. Um, Doig was... I first wrote about Doig in about probably... after he'd been my student at St Martins, probably in about 1986 (laughs) or 7. And so I don't think that's historically quite true, really. But um, it was one of the things Tom liked... Very much. And he was a critic who I, who I, I, whose company I enjoyed, who, who was extremely thoughtful, acerbic, funny, um, awkward. Uh, and amongst my colleagues, was was one of the ones I respected the most.
0: This uh, gentleman up at the front.
2: You know, a rather different sort of question. I'm, I'm a totally one can expert. Can everybody hear me? Okay. Uh, with or without a microphone, it I think we can... Just one, one question, but two parts to it. I mean, the, the collectors I've come across in
3: a modest way have always operated from the standpoint of a critic, going in, asking the sort of questions that a critic would ask, asking themselves, that is, and then either making a move on something or not. Uh, art
2: education I've had from, from uh, <coughs> kindergarten onwards, if I may say so, yes, kindergarten onwards, was always from the standpoint of a critic, and that's the only way, as I see it, that you can do it. My question is: Have you come across
3: any successful collectors, uh, forget the unsuccessful ones, successful collectors or teachers who don't operate as critics when they're when they're uh, doing their stuff? I think
2: I think that's a very both very good points, and and um, the. Uh, some of the best collectors, I mean, and and you judge them by what they collect, really, not by whether they're nice people or not. I mean, ditto artists. Um, Do have a good critical eye rather than just an acquisitive eye, which is rather different. Um, And some, uh, certainly as teachers, some are, if you're talking about artists who teach, uh, who teach by example rather than by criticism. I've met some In all my years in teaching in art schools, I've met all kinds of people and all kinds of of ways of teaching, Um, from the completely obscure and zen-like teaching that I certainly received from one or two people to a rather more belligerent and, um, shall we say, Scottish approach. (laughs) Uh, Under John Bellany, we would rather lock ourselves in the toilets than have a tutorial (laughs) in the afternoon. Um, Back in his drinking days... Um, but I think you're right. I think every, you know, as I said before, I think everybody having a critical eye, and that means being critical of yourself and not quite believing your own, uh, being always a, uh, concerned about how, um, how cut and dried your own mindset is. And not, you've got to have a certain amount of openness as well as criticality, um, seems to me vital, just vital. And for everybody goes to look at art. Why why do you stop in front of that thing over there and not watch that three-hour video over there and and that thing down on the? You know, you're making choices all the time. But whether you're conscious of doing so or not is another matter. But you are. Yeah. How about down here? Yeah, go ahead. Go for it.
4: (laughs) Hello. Um, Just picking up on that point, actually. As an artist, I've been practicing for the past eight years and. Apparently, I practice in a um, socially engaged and participatory manner, um, but it, I'm, it was interesting what you were saying about this, um, the role of the critic in terms of, for example, I used to write for a, a publication which has now become online, and many of the roles um, have dispersed because there's so many bloggers. You know, there's no opportunity to get paid to get to write now. Um, but I've I've just encountered so many incidences. And I've worked internationally across lots of different contexts with individuals and large organisations, and the lack of criticism is really demotivating and quite shocking, um, um, just in terms of some of the ways these spaces might operate, but also... What you p- say
2: spaces? Do you mean galleries? Or, um,
4: or? Galleries, individual curators, I mean...
2: Okay, Br- one-off projects. Like yeah, 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 yeah. Um,
4: yep. or even how that might filter through from the top down or bottom up. And um, for me, it's really... Uh, the, the best reward is to, you know, engage the audience in discussion and their feedback because it makes you feel alive that there's a purpose sure. behind your own critical engagement. It's like this thing
2: I said about being met with silence.
4: Yeah, absolutely. Is... and And even just... You know, a nod to the Guardian. <laughs> I, you know, I had one of my shows um, featured, and that that meant a lot for me. Yeah. Not because, you know, it just meant that somebody was. It, it just meant that that could raise awareness that there was this yeah. engagement yeah. and interest. Yeah. You know, because otherwise there is silence or there's no conversation, which yeah. is very despondent. Yeah. I know? mean, the Guardian
2: certainly isn't the only place, and nor yeah. are other broadsheet papers. And and um, and. The, the other point you raised which is about writers being paid. I think writers should be paid. You know, and you know, one is often invited to go and do things and say, Well we can't pay you and you think, Well, you're paying paying the guy who puts a microphone on the table and you're paying mm-hmm. you know
4: but artists on, artists on not that.
2: Rate. No, let's not go down the there. Responsibilities come in about value and this
1: criticism and you know, Yeah, yeah.
2: Important. I think you're proving my point really about <laughs> you know about how how important, not maybe you know because I think the word criticism has got a lot of baggage with it,
1: yeah.
2: uh, obviously, um, and it does put in your mind the, the, the image of George Saunders in in The Rebel. You know, oh dear boy, you're marvelous. I can really make your career if you, you just crop six inches off the left
1: and <laughs> had a
2: few more new old ladies. <laughs> You'll do marvellously well. I know this collector. I can introduce <laughs> 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 you yeah, I just see it me
1: from that practical sense of how, you know, you might operate as a gallery and
4: that funding and yeah. self-criticism.
2: Yeah, yeah. We have a valuable social purpose. <laughs> over there, man over there.
0: Look, we have to carry the blade at the front. Oh, I'm
2: sorry. I'm doing your job. For no, you no, me. not <laughs> at all. I've just got a good view from up there. Please um, go on.
5: Well, I'm not from the art world, so I'd like to um, widen the discussion a little bit to all the arts, literature and music, because I think we're witnessing um, very similar phenomena in the different arts. um, And what you said about the critic, um, basically the gatekeepers who used to be the critics um, to what got defined as art in all the different um, arts... um, are no longer the critics but they have come very often from the financial world and I can speak for literature many of the agents um, who um, put up their credentials online um, it's having um, it's being a lawyer for example or a marketing executive who also happens to have a bachelor's degree in literature to um, be a literary agent I'm very
2: aware um, of this phenomenon I think you're right
5: and and because of that um, I think um, we're talking about art today but we're not talking about the art that gets excluded because of the bottom line and that art never gets talked about and even in terms of the internet um, unless the artist is good at self promotion and and through that um, in the cloud um, breaks through the amount of of work that's out there um, gets completely excluded because the bottom line um, is not met
2: but it's not necessarily the critic anymore who will no. who will uh, not just be the gatekeeper but but will who will who will, who will alight on that art. I mean often things happen by word of mouth and I think they always have back to forever you know that artists know each other and they recommend each other and they form networks and groups together and that's how people doesn't matter if you've got a website or a blog spot it doesn't matter but it's that won't necessarily get you anywhere. It's about the relationships you have and the dialogues and the, all the things we were speaking about. Yeah, and in a way, the lawyer come. Um, I don't know, MBA come, am, amateur amateur fan of literature or music can offer yeah the trustees and the. And so on, the trustees of places, and, and become the gatekeepers rather than rather than critics. And um, um, be nice that the opprobrium that was visited on critics was just shifted somewhere else, really. So you know, <laughs> this gentleman here. Um, how can criticism turn into a positive discussion beyond those internet below the bar? Responses. Can you? Th- are there any examples in your own work where some criticism that you made got a response from the artists or the correct More than collectors? a punch in the face, or, a, or exactly, a, yeah. 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 But, and how do they respond? And how does that turn into a discussion? It's, it's uh, often sometimes through teaching or, or discussions, you know, or conversations with artists in public or in studios. Uh, I've often said that it's artists that have taught me what I know, really, or, or if not artists themselves, then their work, rather than you know art history or any, or any And, and I, I think that's true. And um, uh, one thing I avoid as a critic is saying the word "should." His work would be much better if he, he should do this, she should do that. Never, ever be. Have to have that kind of attitude either as a teacher or as a, or, as a, or as a or as a or as a critic because i I don't think it's a, a critic's job really that all you can do is is tell it how you see it really um, I recently did and I sort of skated across it in in, in the talk the word lecture is rather to dramat' rather to aggrandize something which is much smaller but um, I did criticize an artist whose work I've followed f- since. But 1981, I've known since 1981. Someone who helped save my life once. And um, who I've known extremely well and have written about a lot and whose last show I felt um, his last major piece of work was just too baggy and and went off in all sorts of directions. And it was a film work and and it had these lapses in it. And I, I wrote what I thought... With a degree of pain, it was difficult, and I was like, (sighs) real turmoil about what they were going to think, and felt I was being disloyal. uh, But you got to, in a way, and um, had a text back the next day. You're right, you know, and and, uh, never speak to me again for the rest of your life. (laughs) Um, But who knows? Who knows? But you got, you got to call it. Really, no choice. Even if it's your
0: grandmother. Yeah. There's uh, a in the middle at the back. Hi.
6: Um, I was wondering, um, I was glad you brought up Roberta Smith and um, Jerry Saltz because there was a great article like two weeks ago about... Um, how they go to shows together and don't discuss them and how, like, yeah. you know, they have very different ways of approaching criticism.
2: Th- yeah, they like that at home. You know, they pass themselves little big notes yeah. at home. Yeah, no, they, the like, soft. sit at
6: the opposite ends of their apartment and don't speak about the shows they That's see together. Um, I was wondering if you could share a little bit about, like, what your MO is when you go to a show. Do you take notes or do you, like, just go for kind of the top to adjectives drugs. or do you draw a little... Um,
2: I... Uh, my MO... Um, I I generally go alone. I don't like going with somebody else unless <coughs> I know the work already very well. Um, in which case, it can be a great pleasure to go with somebody else because it's like when you you go so, this you take someone somewhere you love or to a city that you love that they don't know um, and you, you start to see it again through their eyes freshly. So that can be great, but on the whole go go alone try and avoid the press view because um, they're trying to give you horrible coffee and, and people come up to you and say well, I think this and I, think and I don't want to know what somebody I want to hear the <laughs> voice in my own head at that point really um, then just go home and write about it and um, try and get and, and try and um, try and go before the press view really and actually have the review come out on the day of the press view so it's like We've been there. We've done that. <laughs> I have left my spore. <laughs>
1: um,
2: and there is a bit of that uh, antagonism. I mean, um, Jerry and Roberta are very fun. I mean, in fact, they've been doing double act talks like this together recently. I think they did one this week. You'll probably find it on YouTube. And um, they've only started it. But they, th- th- I was with them once. And they said, we, we never go to the dinner. We always say, well, come for the cocktail, but we won't stay for the dinner.
1: <laughs> and,
2: um, and they're quite good like that. And they live on, they have like ten coffees lined up from the deli and they'll just microwave them. <laughs> they live like monks, those two. <laughs> it's like the pandas with their bamboo Yeah. Or they'll buy a deli chicken on a Monday and they'll finish it by Thursday. And, <laughs> and they, they, they're, they're quite special. I mean that in a good way. <laughs>
0: uh, is there any more questions? Uh, I think this uh, lady, in the, not quite at the back, but one just in front, was our first. No more, in, the, was. in the white, is it? then at the back, you're on.
7: Hi, one, one clarification and, and one question. Uh, when you were talking about curators in their teens, were you meaning... Curators them, in their teens? Yes. You were, were you meaning that there were only a teen number of curators who do a lot of the exhibitions, or did you mean the curators were actually
2: teenagers? Oh, I mean, people... Um, well, I think Hans Ulrich probably thought he wanted to be a curator as soon as he was, like, 14 and met officially in Vice. Because
7: I know, when particularly when I went to the Lowry exhibition at the Tate with my mother, and she found the curatorial side, the the curator clearly didn't understand the period at all. Clearly, was much too young to have understood the war and oh, lived through the, those uh, but,
2: but the curator of the Lowry at the Tate was T.J. Clark, I eminent, was just eminent art historian, <laughs> and um, <laughs> yeah. wrote the book on Manet and uh, <laughs> modern <laughs> Paris, and. Uh, was was returning to his northern roots with his and he did it he created it with his partner Anne Wagner an American academic and and art critic and art historian who 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 looked at the work with completely fresh eyes because she didn't know it from from the past so, so I don't think he I think he just took a like a critic might take an extreme or, or a dissident or a Coming in from another angle, view—that's what he was trying to do with Lowry. That's why I think it was for me a fascinating show. Yes, we didn't have too many matchstick men, and um, I, I would have liked to see more figured, more of Lowry's figures, personally. But that was the angle he took. Um,
7: and, and respect other, him for
2: that,
1: really. the
7: other thought is when you're saying about the bloggers and the unpaid work. The, there are many bloggers out there who seem to use the space as a personal soapbox. Well, that and too. how much are they read and the bloggers who become very successful and noted, are they the ones who have actually taken the step to become a critic which ignites discussion?
2: Well, I think, I think there is a lot of criticism that just takes place in that arena and I, I don't know about successful um, there are just some that are worth reading, you know, um, which isn't the same thing as being successful by any means um, That's good, I mean you've got to... You, just like an artist with your blogspot or your pictures on Tumblr or wherever it is, you've got a. There's no point in having it if nobody's looking at it. Um, and again, it's through having a network and having a disc- having a dialogue with other people. We've come down to the front before we go to, up to the back. Yeah, you've been waiting a long time.
3: <laughs> it's all right. I've been fascinated. Um, you, mu- you observed that in this post-internet world we've got discussions happen more and more and all sorts of tools. Um, might it be possible that there'll be a merging role for critics as curators of all these discussions?
2: Oh, I think that happens.
3: So maybe this is the new role, critic as curator.
2: Well, critics... Well, I think they're all... slippery. All the roles are slippery, yes, but I think that does happen. Critics do curate. I've um, curated a number of exhibitions, but... Um, yeah I, do, about online yeah, I think that does happen I, don't, that, I mean there's a very famous one in the States a guy called Tyler Green who um, has podcasts and blogs and um, uh, brings other people together to have, to have discussions and um, um, or Paddy Johnson who started this online magazine called Art Fag City um, which has gained and in, you know a lot of traction in the states, and especially with since the decline of um, the printed press, because everybody reads. Even you know, how many people actually buy a newspaper when we read them on these things or on our tablets or whatever. So I, th- I think it, yes, it happens. It's happening, and it'll happen more. I think we're at the beginning, not the end.
5: Um, my questions about, um, to do a little bit with how. I guess the success of an exhibition is often measured in the amount of press it can receive, yeah. as well as visitor figures. Um, and I wonder what you feel your responsibility is in when you're writing a review or writing a piece of art criticism towards the institution that's hosting the exhibition, as well as to the artist and the artwork, how you balance the yeah, two. Yeah,
2: that's complicated, because you, you do develop relationships with institutions because you visit them so often and you watch them grow and you watch them go through their good periods and bad periods, as all institutions do. You know, people leave, new people come on, things don't work out, they lose funding, they get more funding, they d- and, um, and you, you end up going to the same places quite often for a number of years, or, or for a number of shows, and then you may not go back for three years because you, you're just led somewhere else. It's probably worth saying that, you know, um, my freedom in a newspaper... Is not absolute, and I'm told to go to places just like i let Sarah Kent tell me where to, what to go and look at in the late 1980s. <laughs> but there are certain things that you have to review, you've got no choice. Um, that said, you know, and it's, and then people imagine that one is just London centric. In the last <coughs> 10 days, actually, in the last eight days, I have been in Frankfurt, Berlin, and Liverpool to see stuff. Um, which I'm very happy about, which is great, you know. Um, how much responsibility I feel towards institutions? Well, you do get to care about them a bit, and you care what happens to them, which may make you more critical of them when things go wrong. Um, the Tate is unavoidable; one has to write about Tate. They do the biggest shows; they've got the most money. They're, you know, you have to write about their shows. I was not uh, very positive about their. Um, keyword show in Liverpool yesterday but um, other shows I'm very positive about and I think you just have to take the rough with the smooth really, that said there are places I never go because their programmes don't interest me or haven't interested me for a long time I didn't hadn't visited the Arnolfini in Bristol except as a casual visitor because um, mm. I happen to be in the city I would see things but like the big Joel Turlink show which is still on there now um, knocked me out so I read about it, you know um, I was happy to do so. Yeah. What a liberal I am. <laughs> Person in the middle there. Right, it's, uh, just um, oh, sorry. Um, okay, thank
5: you. Um. You haven't said much about um, the sort of academic critics, you know, October Journal and Rosalind Krauss and Hal Foster and people like that. What do you think their
1: role is right the, now?
2: They still do have a role. I mean, I don't know if Rosalind Krauss is still writing now or if she can write now since her stroke, but um, they've been hugely, you know, hugely influential on artists, on academics. Their role is... uh, They have a huge role. It's not a great public role in the sense that they're not famous in the way that Robert Hughes was ever famous. I can't see... Uh, Benjamin Booklow having a TV series, really. Actually, it might be quite fun if he did. But um, uh, there are all kinds of criticism, and I think the role of... You can't even just call it academic criticism because it's such a broad church anyway, and there was so many different things going on in all those hundreds and... don't know how many issues October has brought out, and the, the amount of four men um, and the amount of influence on curators and perhaps on artists is much more than a newspaper critic would be, I think. But that's only true of certain kinds of artists, too. The kind who are drawn to, you know, thinking about their work, say, in Lacanian terms or in terms of social practice. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I talk to Boris Groys about something. But, but yeah, I haven't mentioned it because I'm not part of it, but um, I would have done if I had more time and read my notes more carefully.
0: Do we have any more questions? Uh,
6: what gives somebody the right to criticize a piece of art?
5: How do you justify it?
2: Uh, why shouldn't you? you it's there. It's there. You you know, if there was a painting hanging there, mm-hmm. you could criticize it.
6: I could, yeah. But then you have All these opinions, so is the point to just show a person that there are all these different options to feel about something?
2: I don't do that, I Mm -hmm. just tell you what I think about
1: something.
2: Mm And I I think critics, I mean, uh, unlike the academic critic, the Rosalind Krauses and the the Booklows and the Hal Fosters and and so on, um, if you like, I'm an amateur. Uh, Yeah, that's Hal Foster calling me now. Then there is a way in which the critic is, a critic like in a newspaper, is, is you know, we all have our different, we do have areas of expertise um, and little things that we're very, very concerned about. But that we have to, you know, one week it's Rembrandt, the next week it's, it's uh, Hem Steinbeck, the next week it's um, Helen Martin or Heather Philipson or whatever, you know, looking at all sorts of different things. Well, we're spectators with a voice. And um, if that means that we are journalists in some way, well, I, don't, I although I don't love that epithet because it <coughs> makes you think of people sneaking about and going through the entrails of people's dustbins. But um, w- why shouldn't one write about things? Is there a reason? Do, do you think we're... No. How do we get to where we are? Are you saying? Well, what gives us? What gives? What empowers us to do that?
5: So if everybody's doing it,
2: then how do you? Well, how do you decide well I say not everybody is doing it.
5: There is so much. There is so much. Like
2: and it. I'm doing it in a big fuck off place. So that, <laughs> that's what empowers me. <laughs> Whatever works for you, you know. Um, and I never start. And I, and I and I didn't get hit by 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 my. By my machinations and evil, evil kind of ambition, I started out as an artist and was writing in little art magazines, really to have a dialogue with other people. You know, first of all, in Art Scribe magazine, then a bit in Art Forum, and way of making, you know, everybody's ambitious and we are trying to make our way in the world. And um, that was the way it just seemed to happen. And, um, and they asked me, so I said, Yeah, I'll write for the Gardening. Thanks. How much? <laughs> <laughs> well, that feels like a cut-off point somehow. Mm-hmm. Or
0: have if you got, you got the question? We, we've got time for one more, unless you're... Okay, unless you well, no, no, like no, 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 it was just... <coughs>
1: just had a sort of roundness to it. <laughs> <laughs> In
6: temporary remark, am um, I? Like. I have a question... Um, I, I'm not a professional, I don't paint, so don't
1: worry about it. Uh, to me, okay,
6: yeah. uh, looking at art or reading is a very personal and subjective experience. and I think that when you have um, various critics giving their opinions, who have um, who, you know who, who have degrees and so on, <coughs> I almost feel like... You know, it's, it's not really fair, because it's a view of, a, of one person, and I think it's not really fair to the artists. I sometimes go to an art gallery, and I wonder why that painting ever got uh, displayed, but then I realize that that's just my subjective uh, view. Uh, And and sometimes I think that art criticism has turned from um, a genuine, you know, debate about the different um, understandings and perceptions to something that's very streamlined um, and and is a bit rigid. And, you know, some young, a lot of famous artists became famous after they died. Um, and so my, my question to you is whether the critics um, take responsibility for their views and for how they might actually shape uh, the uh, you know yeah, shape have, the art scene.
2: Well, we, we have a role in that. Yes, of course we do. I thought you, for a minute you were going to say that we had a, a part in killing the in the death of the artist, <laughs> but, which may well be true. I and mean, I, I've got hitmen at work all around the city at the moment um, on a contract for me. Um, yeah, I think the difference is that you know it comes back to the earlier question too. Is that the thing about critics is we're the people who've seen too much. You know, we've actually we actually see a lot more than most people. All kinds of art, all the time, week in, week out, year in, year out, and we've seen a lot. Um, young critics tend to be quite angry and uh, and um, extremely opinionated and uh, uh, they've got a sort of fire in their belly you can't uh, sustain that that's very difficult to sustain over a very long period to to have that um, fixed position and that that, uh, particular kind of focus Um, so we, we tend to become generalists on the whole, unless we're academics or unless we're art historians or art theorists with a very specific Area of interest, no matter what it is, you know, whether it's fifteenth-century painting or it's art in relation to, I don't know, queer theory or it's or it's feminist theory or it's uh, looking at a a particular period or art of a particular nation and so forth. We we tend to be rather generalists rather than specialists, and um, but there's a place for that. And so, one of the things that we probably do is. Draw threads from different places and try and put things in a broader context and look at things in a broader context than not just the um, the period. Well, something much narrower than the period. You know, the the the, the city and the friendships and the so forth that we we can relate things in a much more broad way because we're travelling around all the time, looking at so much. Um, we all think. How the bloody hell did that get on the wall or on the video screen? About things all the time. Everybody, but everybody is entitled to opinion. But some opinions are more interesting and more, <laughs> uh, isn't it, and more developed than others. I mean, if you're a sports, if you're a football, if if you if you were to have a conversation with me about football, I know that Arsenal is somewhere in North London, and that's about it. End of story. I've been to half a match in my whole life. So I'm not the person to go to for football, in the same way that some people are not the person to go to for, uh, to talk about contemporary art, for example. You know, it's just, that's just the way it goes, I think. I must go to another match one day. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much. I think.